a healthy church. And, and frankly, the one that we're looking at uh, this morning, uh, I guess you would you would call it a, a bit of a no no brainer. Uh, we're going to be talking about about prayer, and I would be fairly surprised if uh, we were all asked to jot down a little list of of things that we felt were were healthy marks of the Christian life or the life of the church. If any of us actually had missed out. Uh, prayer on that list. So we, we all know about that. We know that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We know that it said about the early church that they, they devoted themselves to prayer, among other things. Virtually every letter in the New Testament talks about it. Uh, we know all about the mechanics of prayer. Some of us know that little acronym, you know, the ACTS thing, the A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplement. We, we know things about prayer. But I think if all of us are, are, are fairly honest about it, it's, it's the thing that we struggle with probably the most in our Christian life. It is to be consistent and persevering um, as far as prayer to God, our Heavenly Father, is concerned. And I, and I think there are some reasons for that. One, and one in particular is highlighted from our main reading. I've got two or three readings today, but th- this main one in Exodus chapter 17 kind of pinpoints, I found quite helpfully, a particular aspect. So let, let me read that with you. Um, it's Exodus 17 from, some, from verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. And his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, keep your finger in the page there, but turn, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. And finally, uh, the book of Galatians and chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts uh, today. So here, here is this particular picture uh, about, about prayer with, with a particular lesson um, that I'd like to draw our attention to. Then Amalek came. So the, the children of Israel have uh, left Egypt. They're not very far on their journey. Uh, they're traveling through the wilderness and Amalek comes. Now who or what is Amalek? Well, they, they were like uh, Bedouin nomads. They were a, 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 an aggressive, hostile tribe uh, in, the, in the wilderness to, who attacked the people. And as we read in Deuteronomy, um, they attacked those who were kind of lagging behind, the weak, the frail, the vulnerable. They attacked the tail of that vast concourse of, of the nation as they, as they were strewn out along the desert road. And they just kept at them the whole way through. Now, Amalek, if you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 36, you find is a, is a descendant of, of Esau. So this is the remarkable thing. He's related to Israel. Of course, Israel is the other name for, for Jacob. So we have Jacob and Esau, brothers, well, more than brothers, actually, twins, you know, and as they're born, you know, there's not an hour between the birth. One actually is born with, with the hand on, on the other one's heel. They virtually come out together, twins from the same mother, two boys, and yet their descendants are hostile to one another. Amalek descended from Esau, and Israel, the descendants of Jacob. And there is this hostility, as it says at the end, that went on from generation to generation, a hatred between Amalek and between, between Israel. Now it says here, and I'm just going to fill this point out a little bit more, that this, this happened, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now Rephidim is the location that's described in the preceding incident at the, the start of chapter 17. Now, people were carping and complaining as normal, complaining that they'd been brought out into the wilderness to die. They wished they were still back in Egypt. And, um, and what God did was he told Moses to, to stand in front of the rock. Now, as we know, a lot of the Old Testament is filled with symbolism and pictures and illustrations that ultimately, in fact, point us forward to Christ. And we're not left to our own imagination about many of these things. Of course, many preachers have an overactive imagination at times. And as the old hymn says, to paraphrase it, you know, wonderful things in the Bible I see. Some are put there by you and some are put there by me. You know, and we've got to be very careful about that, that we don't allow our imagination to run riot. But you know, there are some of these things that we're given very clear New Testament warrant to talk about. If you go to 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us that the rock that followed the people was Christ. This rock is a symbolism of Christ. And we talk about that, of course, the rock of ages that was cleft for me. You know, the, the strength of Christ. And the rock is struck here. The rock is smitten of course, Isaiah 53 takes up that point, doesn't it? He was smitten for us. He was struck for us upon the cross. And from the rock, there comes water, miraculously, 
to refresh the people and to save the people. And again, we know that from our New Testament, water is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, you go to John chapter 7. Jesus stands on the last great day of the feast. He says, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as it is written, from his inward being, there will, there will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke concerning the Spirit that would be given to those who, who believed in him. And so what we have here is we have two tribes descendant from the one family. We have an incident at Rephidim which teaches us something about the Spirit of God. And yet, the difficulty here is the difficulty of, of what preachers throughout all the generations have referred to, and that's why I read in Galatians chapter 5, is the, 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 the persistent problem of the attack and the hostility of our sinful nature. Even although we have the Spirit of God as believers within our lives to renew us, that has caused us new birth, to be children of God, that gives us insight into the things of God in the Bible, when we become a Christian, it does not eradicate the sinful nature that we have been born with. It's not as if we are completely new at that point. Yes, we have a new standing before God as believers, but it doesn't mean that there is never a problem that arises in my life. And that is why prayer is such a difficult thing. Despite us knowing all about it and knowing the mechanics, it is difficult because this is a very real live event in all of our lives. The fact that the things of the flesh, Galatians 5. Now, when we say flesh, we don't mean flesh and blood. We mean the sinful nature that is inherent to all our lives. That sinful nature is continually warring, fighting, hostile against the Spirit of God who is within us. And that never goes away. And that's why it says there in Galatians, they are opposed to one another. They are hostile to each other. And, and prayer is something that our sinful nature does not wish us to be involved in. And that's why this picture of prayer that we have here is such an appropriate and apt thing to help us. The war between Amalek and Israel at Rephidim. So what we have here is Moses has to speak to Joshua. A couple of just interesting things. You might be interested in this. This is actually the first time that Joshua is mentioned in the Bible. There are two firsts actually in this passage. The second one is um, they're told to write this as a memorial in a book. It's the very first time that writing is mentioned in the Bible. I mean, obviously writing must have taken place, but it's the first time it's actually mentioned and so here's Joshua, the assistant to Moses, who one day, of course, will succeed Moses, take the people into the promised land, be the great general. He will actually have to continue to fight against Amalek because they're not going to be finally destroyed. In fact, the thing about Amalek is this, that you know, their, their warfare with Israel goes on beyond this generation. It goes right into the time of King Saul, 
it goes right on into David's time. And if you really researched your Bible, you would find a mention of it in the book of Esther. No, that's after the exile. So they're actually in Babylon at that time. And you remember the story of this man, Haman, who who desired to destroy totally the Jewish people? Well, it says that Haman was an Agagite. Now, Agag, Agagite, was the king of the Amalekites that's mentioned in the time of Saul and the time of David. So even at that time, Amalek is the sworn enemy of, of Israel. And it just, again, makes this point about the seriousness of our sinful nature. Now, of course, that's a point that many people, most people in our day and age just don't accept, that when we're born, we're born with a nature that's opposed to God, that is an enmity with God, is part of, of humanity. And that's the great problem of sin, the sinful nature that does need to be sorted out, and the gospel does that. But the point I'm making is this, that, you know, that is still a warfare that goes on. Our sinful nature will be with us right to the very end. You know, Paul talks about this actually in Romans chapter 7. You know, the great apostle, the author of the bulk of the New Testament, you know, the man who's head and shoulders above, above most in the church. And he says, you know, I just can't seem to do the things I want at times. And who will deliver me from this body of death? And what he's talking about is that he himself is experiencing this whole issue and problem in his own heart and life. And so it's, it's, it's worth us remembering that when we approach uh, the issue uh, of prayer. So anyway, Joshua is told um, what's going to happen on the, the following day. Moses says, I'm, I'm going to go up on the hill and I'm going to take the staff of God in my hand. The staff of God. What's the staff of God? Is it like a magic wand that uh, when he's up on that hill, he just waves around and, uh, you know, powerful things happen? Of course not. Uh, But the staff of God we know about, if you go back to Exodus chapter 4 at the burning bush, you know, Moses is tending the sheep. God appears to him and he says, what's that in your hand, Moses? It's my stick. It's my staff. Take that with you, you know, when you go down to Egypt. You remember even at the burning bush, he, uh, as God verified that he was speaking, he was, so, he was told to throw the thing on the ground and it turned into a snake. did that again when he was with uh, Pharaoh. He did other things with it, struck the Nile, and when they were it turned to blood, when they were escaping from Egypt, you know, he held it up and the Red Sea parted. So this is the very same staff. It's the staff of God. What is this? It's the symbol of God's authority. It's the symbol that God is with him, that he speaks for God as his ambassador. And so with this sense, this symbol of power, I guess it's pretty similar to the scepter, you know, that we would use. And uh, what's the thing that they have in the Houses of Parliament? They have a kind of orb thing as well there, don't they? That uh, represents authority. And so that's, that's what this is all about. And he's taking that with him up to the hill the next day. Power. So Joshua is going to learn some lessons. And he's going to learn these lessons because, of course, as things are written down in the book as a memorial, they're going to be particularly, it says here, recited in the ears of Joshua. Things that he will have to learn for his role in a coming day when he takes over the mantle. 
And so he's going to learn something about God's power and authority. This picture of prayer. He's going to learn that prayer is the source of power and authority. And uh, of course that's good for us to be reminded of again. And Joshua was very much aware of that. You know, you can just imagine this, the scene. He's in the middle of the battle. And occasionally he looks up to the hill and he sees the silhouette of the three people on the hill. He sees Moses and his two brothers, Aaron and Hur. And he sees the, the symbol of God's authority and power being, being, being held up there. And of course what it says is that when, 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 when the, the staff was held up high, that Joshua and the people of Israel prevailed and, and when he grew weary and his, his hands were tired and the staff came down, then the enemy prevailed. And he begins to understand there is something important about the power that comes from prayer. And of course, we, we know that. We've been taught that. And I'm just going to read that verse in James chapter 5, which says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so when we are involved in prayer, there is great power that takes place. It's not a magic wand, but it is something that symbolizes that there are great mysteries about prayer, and I don't think I understand it all or can convey it to you, but there is great power in prayer. And and this picture here makes that point. And so we can apply that to our lives, that when we pray, the battle goes well. When we continue to pray, the power that works. When we pray helps the cause of God to prevail. The thing and the person and the circumstance that you continue to pray for, there is great power as it is working. And when we don't do it, things go the other way. Joshua was learning this. And of course, this whole idea of, of hands being held up is often used in the Bible, again, as, as symbolic of prayer. You know, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, I, w- I, want, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands without wrath, without doubting, in prayer. And that's the picture that, that, that comes to us from, from this. So, The other lesson, of course, that that he was going to learn was not just about the power of prayer, but he was going to learn something about about weariness in prayer. You know, Moses' hands grow weary. It's a long day. He couldn't keep his hands up. And, And we all can associate with that, the weariness of life at times. Things that go on and on, circumstances that seem to never end, difficulties, problems, people, family, and, and, and there's a weariness about it. And yet, this, this is teaching us to be persistent. You know, of course, our Lord Jesus teaches us that. He told the parable that people ought to continue to pray, to keep on praying, not to faint, not to give up. He told the story about that persistent widow that came to the unjust judge, kept harping on, you know, and he said, you know, God's not like that. He, he listened to her just because he wanted her to go away. God is not like that. He's your heavenly Father who cares for you. But the point Christ is teaching is about the importance of persisting in prayer despite our weariness. Now, the thing, of course, that helped him 
in his weariness was the companionship of his two brothers. And Joshua would have noted that. And that is a principle that is worth our consideration this morning. You know, even the Lord Jesus needed companionship in prayer. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? The terrible intensity of that moment of prayer. He prayed more, more intensely. And he, and he, he took Peter, James, and John with him and he said you know can you be here and watch with me during this occasion support and that's what that's what um, we have here so during the weariness here are Aaron and, and her and they, they sit him down on the stone and, and they, they, they support his hands so that the battle continues to prevail and go well and this symbolism this picture of prayer is maintained and, and, and what encouragement and what a necessity that is as far as we are concerned. That, that we all encourage each other to continue to pray that the battle goes well. Now, to that end, I want to introduce something that we've been discussing as elders that I hope will be useful and helpful. We'll put these slides up now, Samuel, okay? Um, at the end of the service today, uh, there is a, a book for, for each family and at the bottom of the stairs Rod uh, will give you the book uh, it's called Five Things uh, to Pray for Your Church and there are about 21 different sections uh, in this book things that might be helpful for us to pray uh, as far as the church was concerned I mean if you're anything like me to have something that helps to organize you and just to give you a little bit of a structure that you can plug into, I have always found that very helpful in the Christian life. We all know, as I say, the things that we should do. It's just that most of us are not very good at doing it. And so if something can help us along the way, and I think this book could be useful, I think it's worthwhile. So um, each of the sections, as I say, there are 21 of them, takes up a particular thing that we could pray as far as the church is concerned. And under each one, there are five points. And this is what this uh, illustrates for us. So, for instance, the one that I, I've just ch uh, chosen as an example, because we did this a couple of weeks ago, uh, based on Romans chapter 1, is to pray that my church would make known God's glory. Now, the thing about this is that each of the sections is based on a short passage of scripture and so we're praying through the bible we're taking the words of god and using that as the basis for our prayer which can only be helpful so the next slide so just for an example on on on, on you can either do one of these as a whole every day or you can just dip in and out or take just one little section of the five for monday and next for tuesday through to friday so Father, in our evangelism, help us to feel indebted. You remember that passage from a couple of weeks ago from Romans 1, that I am a debtor, I am, I, I am indebted to the, the Jews and to the Greeks and to the barbarians. And so, for instance, sometimes people feel that evangelism is something best left to the experts or church leaders. But we've been given so much in the gospel of Jesus Christ that every Christian is indebted and obligated to share it. Pray that every member of your church would feel that burden to proclaim the gospel, shaking off apathy and being filled with compassion for the lost. We know this, this is what God wants us to pray for and this is just helping us. So go on to the next one. 
the next part of the, of the passage says, you know, I'm indebted both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. Father, in our evangelism, help us to reach diverse groups. Pray that your church would reach diverse groups of people within your community. We all tend to gravitate towards people who are like us, but pray that your church would be able to push outside their comfort zone. What would that look like in your situation? Pray that you would warmly embrace all types of people, confident that the gospel can transform all types of people. Now, as I say, there are five things under each of these. This is just one, one example. So that will be there for you at the end. Uh, take it, dip into it. It may well be that in some of our prayer sessions that we're going to be organizing uh, in the near future that we may well use this helpfully as the basis for what uh, we're going to do. Now, just, just as we close, um, there is a final point I'd like to make. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the, the day, the battle is won on that occasion. And Moses sets up an altar. And, and he gives the altar a name. And he calls it, well, we've got the translation of it here. Yeah, he calls it, the Lord is my banner. In the Hebrew, it is Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. And he said, as he named it that, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Now, you, you can understand this idea. He, he held the staff of God up above him. But he said, in one sense, it wasn't the staff of God. It was like a flag flying. It was a standard. It was a banner that was above me. And in the same way as we know there are the different flags, the different colors that represent nations and all the rest of it, you know, here was a banner that symbolized that he belonged to God, that they were the people of God, that God ruled over them, and they stood under his banner saying, this is where we belong. This is where we stand. The Lord is our banner. Now that, that again is a great picture of prayer. And it's a great picture of, of, of Christianity actually. There might be many flags that are all paraded along the, along the line. What flag are we going to stand under? What badge are we going to kiss, if you like? The Lord is my banner. You know, to take your stand with Christ. And to realize that the hand is upon the throne of the Lord. He said, you know, my hand wasn't just on my staff. My hand wasn't just up in the air as I was up on the hill. My hand was holding on to the throne of God. Now, what a fantastic picture for us as we think of involvement in prayer, be that privately or as the church together. We hold up holy hands symbolically and our hands are actually reaching beyond this, you know, fancy roof, beyond the clouds, and our hand is touching and holding on to the very throne of God with all the power and authority and capacity and capability that goes along with that. That was the great, the great lesson that Joshua learned as he had all of that recited for him, recorded in the book as it was just a final point it's just, I couldn't get away from this actually you know that, that, that silhouette of the three men on top of the hill 
I mean, maybe this is my imagination running away with me. But, you know, that's not the only time we, we get that picture painted for us in Scripture, is it? You know, we, we used to sing as children in the Sunday school, three crosses standing side by side, you know? And uh, we turn our eyes this morning, not to, not to Moses on the hill, but to the one that Moses was really pointing forward to, the one that Moses stood beside on the Mount of Transfiguration, where they spoke about his exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. And on Calvary, he did accomplish that. You know, when he made atonement for sins, the ultimate symbolism of, of power, of a hand on the throne of God, when Christ gave himself for our sins. Now, we look, we look to heaven this morning, and we see Christ there. And we see him as we sang in our very first hymn, before the throne of God. And we see him when we even feel tempted to despair about our own failures. We see him there, and we realize that he is praying for us. And we realize that as we pray in such a faltering and inconsistent way at times, Christ prays for us and helps us, and God's Spirit also prays for us at the same time, Romans 8, when we don't know what we need, we need to pray for, and, and our words are stumbling. The Holy Spirit, with great intensity and groaning, is actually involved in our prayers and makes them like incense in the presence of God. You remember that picture in Revelation about the prayers of God's people ascends like incense, like perfume. My prayers like perfume that God is pleased with because of the work of Christ and his spirit. So I hope this is of some encouragement to us rather than it being a harangue on you know, how poor we all are at prayer. You know, it helps us understand why. It's because of our sinful nature. And we need to fight against that and feed the Spirit and have our mind set on the things of the Spirit. And this is, in this book, what the Spirit says to the churches. This is what the Spirit has recorded for our benefit today. May God bless us as we try to become a healthy church. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for this privilege of prayer, all that we've been learning. The Lord is our banner our hand upon the throne of God and so we make our prayer with all that potential authority that is working during times like this to pray for ourselves, for our encouragement for our eyes to be turned to Christ, for strength in the battle against our sinful nature to help us to persevere in believing prayer for this church that we might be able to support each other to help and encourage one another to walk for Christ and to be an impact as far as the gospel is concerned in our area and in our generation. And so we thank you for your goodness to us as we make our prayer in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.